0: Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, that it comes to us in a gracious and sovereign way. And we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts tonight to the truths that you want to teach each one of us personally. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles tonight to 1 Kings 11, I want to kind of summarize what we've been working with with David, because this will be the last of the lessons in this series we've actually worked on for two years We're going to election reign of david because the handouts that you pick up tonight are beginning a new a new series part four and part four will start with solomon and take us through the end of the old testament um and we'll have a kind of a little different emphasis in that part of the scriptures that we ha- have had. But in 1 Kings eleven six, the thing I want you to show, I'm going to take you to three verses in 1 Kings, the first one being 11, uh, verse 6. And my intent in showing you these three verses is to have you see that the prophets who wrote the text under the inspiration of scripture from this point on, measured the behavior of a king by the behavior of David. David became a model of leadership in the kingdom of God. Warts and all. Because apart from Jesus Christ, there is no perfect person. But David is is held up as a model. For example, look at 1 Kings 11, verse 6. Measuring Solomon. This is a prophetic Evaluation of the next administrative dynasty, uh, the next person in the dynastic line, Solomon. For Solomon went, af- went after Ashtaroth, and you'll see in verse five I'm reading here. I just kind of get the flavor. He went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. So, Solomon is compared to his father in an unfavorable way. Now, if you turn to chapter 14, verse 8, he's talking to Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a kingdom that was a king in the north. We're going to study the northern and southern kingdom and the civil war and the disruption of the kingdom that's coming. Um... But that anticipates things. Tonight I just want to see the simple point. In chapter 14, verse 8, notice God is talking about how he tore the kingdom away from the house of Jacob and gave it to you, that's the north. Ten tribes went north, two tribes stayed south. Um, He tore the kingdom away from the house of David and he gave it to you. Now notice the comment. Yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments, who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. Now, this is a pretty high evaluation of a man, and yet we have his biography of Scripture that most people wouldn't consider to be uh, a top-notch role model. Um, In chapter 15, verse 3, we have Abijam, another king in the reign, and he too is evaluated by comparison with David as the model leader. Chapter 15, verse 3. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. So, it's quite clear that the prophets, the prophetic authors of Scripture, deliberately, consciously, Explicitly, held up David as the model. So we're back to this thing that the leadership in the kingdom is centered on King David. He was the one who set up the worship in Jerusalem. He was the one who saw as the people before him had not seen that Israel had a mission to the world because he consciously brought the ark to a very non-Jewish place. Jerusalem was not a Jewish city. Very interesting. It was a pagan city. And he brought the Ark into Jerusalem, and he did so almost acting as a priest, bordering on this Melchizedekian model of a Gentile king-priest. So things are going on with David and the whole model. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to leave the biography of David and all that history, history material. And we're going to look at sanctification, the truths of the Christian life, now, using the tools that we're going to get from the Davidic narratives. So that's why, if you're following the notes on page 110, we're going to go through the way we treated, remember, sanctification before... Um, we said that the doctrine of sanctification, you don't hear much about that word, but that's the word that describes the packet of material given in the Bible that controls our relationship to God and our personal life what we would normally call the spiritual life, the Christian life, or whatever. And what we're trying to do now is see what the foundational components are to that packet of truth. And we can, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a lifelong study of all the details. Prayer, the filling of the Holy Spirit, um, spiritual gifts, and all these other things. We're not into all those, those details here. What we're interested in here is just the overall ideas. And you'll remember that the doctrine of sanctification we first attached, not to David, but we attached to the conquest and settlement. Because remember the idea here? Here's how to use the Old Testament in your Christian life. Use the power of your own imagination to imagine you being a participant in these stories. The stories are richly enough told in the Bible's text that it feeds enough material into your imagination. So you can imagine seeing David, you can imagine the battles going on. Christians have done this for years. The Psalms are replete with references to the history. So the Old Testament becomes a tool to image how God works. And that's the intent of the Old Testament, why God preserved it. One of the reasons why he preserved it. Um, So, why does sanctification begin with a conquest and settlement? Well, it goes back to this diagram that we've gone again and again. God's intent in history is he is going to deal with the problem of evil. Now, the skeptic and the critic of the Christian faith always wants to deal with the problem of evil now. He demands an answer now. How can a good God let all this evil go on? And you've all heard this. Every time you evangelize or witness or try to share your faith, nine times out of ten, this is what's going to get thrown back at you. And it's always the same thing. God is, can't be a God of, you know, strength and omnipotence and also God and be God who loves. Well, the answer to the evil problem is that God will take care of the problem in His time. And understand, Mr. Non-Christian, that when he takes care of the evil problem, if you're associated with the evil, you get shunted to an eternal hell. Just understand what you're asking for, for the kingdom to come. You're asking for a bifurcation, a separation of good and evil that is permanent and unchanging. Now, is that really the solution to evil that you want now? Or would you rather let the problem of evil percolate and be dealt with on God's timetable according to his maneuvers? So, sanctification then, because in conquest and settlement, going back to that period, that was when holy war began. And in the conquest and settlement, you remember, is when Israel went into the land and destroyed, exterminated, and permanently eradicated a certain evil group of people. A people who had rebelled against the word of God for generations... It had been passed from father to son to grandson to great-grandson, three or four generations deep. And God says in the Word that He allows sin patterns to dominate a family for three and four generations. And after that, He deals with the family. And one perfect example of that is the family of Herod in the New Testament. Because the Herodian family for four generations rebelled against the Word of God. The, The Herod family had face-to-face truth. They had the wise men who came and spoke to them. They had a clear enunciation of the gospel. The son of Herod did. And so on and so on. And the answer of the Herod clan was genocide, destruction, arrest, and persecution to drive away this truth. And God's answer to them was horrible deaths in all those four generations. Given in the New Testament text. So God has a way, it's kind of tough, but it's His way of cleansing families that get very dysfunctional. If allowed to percolate, and remember in the Old Testament, the danger was that families lived close together. So that you had the grandparents, if they went negative toward the Lord, they had an awesome effect on their children and their grandchildren because they were clustered. You see this, for example, how did God deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the fourth generation? Remember when we studied Genesis? What happened in the fourth generation of Abraham's family? They had degenerated. In the first generation of Abraham, God's always appearing personally to him. And then in Isaac, it's less so. In Jacob's, it's dreams. And finally, with Jacob's sons, he never appears. The Theophany stopped. And what happens? In the fourth generation, what happens to that family? They get sent into captivity. And they're put in a segregated society where eventually they're going to become very highly persecuted people. So again, we see the same principle. God seems to work, uh, and he says that in the Ten Commandments. Uh, I visit the fathers, the iniquity of the fathers, unto the sons, to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. But then people fail to realize the other side of the print, which says and I bless the thousands of generations of them that love me. So, God has a way of dealing with this, and when He the big theme here is that it's part of a long cosmic plan. This is not just a Bible story. This is not just an event in our personal life. This is part of a principle of the universe that's going on here. And that's the thing we want to capture by looking at sanctification now from the life of David because we're going to advance one step. From the conquest and settlement, it was war. We saw certain basic truths uh, in that period of time, but it was all national. It was all group. It was never personal and individual. Now on page 110, I have a diagram there where I've tried to pull together the controls on on David's sanctification. One of the truths of sanctification, we want to look at this, Because this is not well understood in Christian circles. That we, in our Christian life, are under contracts. This idea of God's behavior toward us being carrying out contractual terminology is embedded in the Bible. And we said that one of the points of sanctification is that sanctification has certain phases to it. And we want to distinguish these phases. The first thing is to understand that we share a place in the overall plan of God. Now, David's plan is depicted at the bottom of page 110, where I've tried to summarize two covenants, two contracts that control that man's life. Was David always conscious of that? Probably not. But the prophets were who wrote the book. Because when they chose to write stories of David's life, they picked and they choose. One story, they dropped another story, they picked this story, they dropped another. And why do you suppose they did that? You ever stop to think of the thousands of things that King David did, why are just these picked? Well, the Holy Spirit picked these out. Why did the Holy Spirit pick these out? Because they, to David, they might have been the big things? Not necessarily. If we could interview David... Now, and ask him the question, David, how would you have written your biography? What what were the big things in your life, from your point of view, then? And what he would tell us probably isn't what the Holy Spirit's emphasizing here necessarily. So we're looking at, shall we say, a laundered history. And by the way, it's a laundered history of Israel, too. Because one of the shocking things that archaeologists find when they dig down into the strata around Israel is the prevailing idolatry. Even in the levels that are reputed to be the Jews. I mean, when I went and visited Israel, I brought back an image of Baal. It was dug up from a, apparently a Jewish lair. So, we find that the archaeological evidence is that a lot of Jewish people in the Old Testament never, never got the message. What we're getting here is a a laundered version of Israel's history through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, because this is what he was doing. Now, the thing in David's life is, you want to see that his life is controlled by the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And those covenants had specific things that are going to be true. The Abrahamic covenant, he had a land, a seed, a worldwide blessing. The Davidic covenant also had controls, or had terminology to it. We said one of those controls was that David had a unique father-son relationship. He was, the, he was the one where this father-son relationship really got started in the Old Testament, terminology-wise. Now, Obviously, Abraham was a friend of God, but the father-son model becomes more clear in David's life than anybody else to date as we move through the Bible. The other thing, of course we know, is that David's seed is going to survive for eternity. So he's going to have an eternal dynasty. So his genes, making babies, and those babies make babies, and those babies make babies, that lineage of genetic material from David is going to go on forever. And it will always be a royal seed. And then David is centered in Jerusalem. He has a special relationship to the city of David. Still call that. All of the events of David's life make sense in terms of those things. In other words, this becomes the control method of saying, what is going on in my life? Now, let's think about what we're saying here. God, in his attributes, one of his attributes is, he is omniscient. That means he has comprehensive knowledge. He knows things about what he's going to do in carrying out this plan from eternity to eternity. He knows all the details. Question details, and the answer is obviously no. We have finite knowledge, we're creatures. Now, David's over here, and David's a creature. And David has certain knowledge of what's going on, but it's not this. It's not omniscience. So there's going to be event after event after event after event after event that happens to David down through his life. He will see the meaning maybe of this one, this one, and maybe that one. And the rest of the events don't seem to make that much sense to him as he walks through time. Okay, What then, what does he do to manage his life? Knowing that he can't get at the meaning of every little thing that happens to him, where does he seek refuge? And the answer is, we trust in the God of the plan. And we trust in his character. And this is not just magic hocus-pocus. Think of what we just said. We have said something just now that cannot be mimicked by any person outside of the Bible. Let me me say this again so it comes across clearly. When we trust the Lord of the covenants for meaning and purpose in our life, we are performing an act that cannot be performed by any non-Christian. And the reason is because God has revealed Himself in the Scriptures in this case of David, right here. We have to we in faith we submit to that revelation. We don't submit to it just as printed pages in a book that we found in the library, but as a book that is the very words of the Creator of the universe. That is the language we're looking at here. And we're looking at one who has proved himself trustworthy, and so we trust the trustworthiness of the one who builds these covenants. We look at that and we say, there's a contract there. And no matter what happens in my life, I know the terms of those contracts will be carried out. And somehow, the chaos in my life plays into the unfolding of those contractual terms. What do we have here that the non-Christian doesn't have? We have meaning and purpose. Now, where, if you're a non-Christian, are you going to get meaning and purpose from Oh, they, they think they have meaning and purpose, but where's that meaning and purpose coming from? It's coming from their heads. It's coming from inside. They're making up and manufacturing their meaning and purpose. So, the choice is between real meaning and purpose that has to be given to us by the one who's made the whole universe, because, or it's our finite production. And if we try to create meaning and purpose for our life, it's just this. And it doesn't fit because there's a lot of stuff out there that we don't know. And if the whole doesn't have meaning, the parts can't have meaning. So it's important then that we see that men like David who are held up to be models ultimately are covenant men. They're men who can walk through life with the assurance that even though they don't know the details, they know, they trust in one who has bound himself to them with a written message that will contractually be validated. Now, that's that's the one phase of of the sanctification. We can call this position. This is David's position. If you want to, some people like to call it that. It's the positional truth of where we stand. Now, in contrast to that, on page 111, I've given another set of circles, and this one deals more with the Uh, with a known. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, deal with the overall picture from eternity to eternity. But when it comes to a moment-by-moment decision, we walk along in time, we make decisions, and we have a certain amount of knowledge, and I think I'm just going to draw this, instead of a circle, I'm going to draw it sort of like an amoeba, because this changes. Hopefully, as we grow that boundary expands. But so at any given point, we know only so much. And what did David know? This will be the known will of God, the known will of God for David. The specific commands. Viewed another way, what I'm saying here, all these are imperatives. These verbs are all do, don't do. They are commands. The verbs that have to do with a position are indicative, mood. These are verbs of state. They state what God is or what He isn't going to do, or what will come to pass. Now, David knew the will of God through his conscience, as we all do, but mainly through the Sinaitic Covenant. He knew the law. Remember we started this whole kingship series off and I pointed out what did the king of Israel have to do? What was his assignment every single day? To meditate in the law. Remember? Deuteronomy 17. Meditate in the law. And we made a big issue of that, that unlike Pharaoh and the Assyrian kings, the king of Israel had to daily submit himself to a higher law. So even though he was king, He wasn't an absolute power like the Gentiles, like the pagan kings were. Then, in addition to the Sinaitic covenant, David had extra revelation that he got that we don't have, and that is he had a prophet. He had Nathan, uh, and of course, Saul had, and, and early in his life, he had Samuel. So he had prophetic instruction, and through this priest, he had priestly instruction. Now, in this phase of David's life, he is responsible to react to this. Is he or is he not going to follow out these mandates? So, on the one hand, he has a position, and then this, the, this is what he's supposed to do at, in his life, what he, how, how to respond to different situations. This is what David, uh, God wants him to do. So, there are the phases. One is position, the other is kind of like experience. That is analogous in our Christian life. And except in the New Testament, ours becomes much more complicated than David. Because we're said to be in Christ. The moment we're said to be in Christ, we share His righteousness. We share His wisdom. We share His cleansing, the cleansing blood. I mean, people have gone on and created hundreds of things that are in this in Christ thing. I mean, here we're talking about three or four in Abraham and Davidic covenant. Well, you get in the New Testament and it becomes profoundly, profoundly more contentful. It's overwhelming. And it's it's to our shame, I guess, that we don't meditate more on our position in Christ and think about all the riches that we have in him. And we, like David, also have the commands and imperatives of the New Testament. Do this, don't do this, do this, and don't do this. So there's these two. But what I want us, you to see in how the sanctification works out in our lives is we constantly deal with the imperative verbs, what we're supposed to do and not do, it, trusting in this big picture, what's going on. And when we get discouraged, what often happens is we, st- we get stuck right here. We're stuck with the imperatives, or we've failed, or something's happened, And then we go and get in a tailspin and chase our tails around, right over here, failing to understand that there's a bigger dimension, there's another phase to this Christian life that goes on, that's guaranteed, that goes from eternity to eternity. And thankfully, especially when we screwed up, and David screwed up, so... That's that's one part of sanctification. Another part of sanctification, which we started this, uh, this evening with, a series of verses, is the fact that sanctification has an aim to it. And the aim of sanctification, with all due respect to a lot of emphasis in Christian life circles, the aim, biblically, of sanctification, when all is said and done and all the experiences are set aside, the ultimate aim is loyalty to God. Obedience to God. That's the ultimate aim of it all. It is not to have some hyper-spiritual experience, although we can have hyper-spiritual experiences. I mean, people, uh, there'll be times when you see dramatic things happen, healings that you've prayed for and doubted that it would ever be answered in a graphical way, or you will see tremendous conversion situations where somebody just turns around and just amazes that this could possibly ever happen, violates all the sociological nurture nature arguments. And here's this person change their life around. So we're witness to those dramatic things, but don't lose perspective that the aim of sanctification is not to terminate on those things. The aim in sanctification is always on the issue of our righteousness before God. And that righteousness before God is an obedient spirit. And so we found God, what evaluated David, is basically one who had got the lesson. We're gonna. I'm emphasizing this because when we get to the last thing tonight, this is going to have to come up as a point of tension. Another thing that we've said in the past, there's two um, tools or two means God uses in sanctification. and all our lives, he's using these two tools. One is law, and one is grace. Both of them are used. Law is always used to expose our sin, create an issue, create a point of tension, make us aware of something God wants us to be aware of, Give us content for our faith. See, we had no law. We have no insight into the contractual terms. And we had no content for our faith. We'd be just sitting around, I'm trying to believe, I'm trying to believe, I'm trying to believe. You can't work belief up. You can't work faith up. Faith flows out of an assurance of some content someplace. There has to be some content to faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then God always treats us in grace because we're miserable people and who've fallen, and God is a gracious God. And we wouldn't even be on speaking terms with God, and He wouldn't even be talking to us if He first wasn't gracious. And if you want a picture, think of Adam and Eve hiding under the bushes. Pick some stupid picture in your mind, but that one's always stuck in mind. Two adults hiding in a bush. This is the human race now. And that's the first picture we get from the Scriptures. Wonderful start in history. And who is it that walks and says, Why are you where you are? Who starts the conversation? Who doesn't want to start the conversation? Isn't that so true? Isn't it always God that finally breaks through to us and not we to Him? Because we're kind of embarrassed, we don't want to really deal with this thing. And he reaches down through another person or through some event or somehow and reaches us and touches us. The same God who walked the topsoil and the grasses in the Garden of Eden doing the same thing in our lives hasn't changed a bit. Law and grace. But the important lesson we want to come to, and we want to cover one more thing, the enemies of sanctification. Sanctification is a battle because history has fallen and we have enemies. And the Bible tells us what those enemies are. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's a whole... They're each of very three are very different. They work synergistically. They work together. But the, opposing the flesh with tools that were designed to oppose Satan won't work. And trying to oppose Satan with tools that are designed to cope with the flesh won't work. And so that's a whole other area of it, the enemies of sanctification. But for now, just think of, keep, keep it simple. What was the difference between David's attitude to the Philistines, the enemies that he faced, and Saul's attitude to the Philistines? Let's just think. Got two, two role models here. Do you remember David as a as a teenager what he said when he walked out on that battlefield with his little slingshot? Remember what he said? Who is this guy think he is, who is defying the armies of who? Saul? No. Mine? No. The armies of the living God. So it David was just utterly aghast that this eight-foot nincompoop could have the audacity to take on God. So David wasn't concerned with the guys. He, you know, he outweighs me. He's taller than I am and everything else. What David was thoroughly amazed at, that this jerk could be so stupid David was saying to himself, this guy spiritually must have fallen out of the stupid tree and hit every branch on the way down. What is wrong with this man? And he saw the enemies then as whose enemies? God's enemies. What has happened to Saul? Saul went out, and I gave you some, verses, uh, some verse references there on page 113 at the top. If you look at those verses, you'll see when Saul went into battle, it was to avenge himself. Samson's was the same way. Remember that famous incident when he was in the temple? Punched his eyes out, and he made one last prayer. And God was working through him, but he said, God avenge me on my enemies. Boom. Collapsed the pillars and killed himself and took out 1,000, 2,000 men, women, and children. He was sort of the Oklahoma bomber from God's point of view. So, when we have this situation... You see, there's a mental difference, and that mental difference makes all the difference in the world. If we go out and see enemies of us as enemies of us, immediately we're defeated. We saw that at Ai. When they went up and they tried to battle people at Ai, they lost. Why? Because they were spiritually out of it before they stepped out of their camp. Wrong objective. The objective is these are enemies of God. And that's why they're our enemies not because they're antagonistic to us. Now we want to conclude with something that we did not develop back when we developed sanctification under the conquest and settlement period, and that's what we'll call the dimensions of sanctification. These are related, actually, to the first, first thing. In the Christian life, you can diagram our obedience pattern. As we grow in the Christian life, we have our ups and our downs. That's long-term growth. But distinguish that, distinguish that long-term picture from the fact that at any given instant of time, at any given point, I'm either obeying God or I'm disobeying Him when, when these decision points come up. There are certain decision points that come up. And that's what we mean here when we talk about the existential present. We're not meaning existential in the sense of the existentialists, who deny that there is such a thing as truth, but the existentialists did clarify for us one thing, and that was you can't decide about things in the past, and you can't decide about things in the future, and the only place you can make decisions is in the present, the existential present. And that was one of the positive things that came out of that era of thinking. We obviously are talking here about David's defeat spiritually over the Bathsheba scandal and how he recovered from it. Now, let's tie this together with how we started tonight. I started tonight by taking you to three verses where it was stated that David followed God wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y. He followed God wholly. Now, how do you reconcile the fact that that's a prophetic interpretation and summary of the man's life, and yet it's characterized by a scandal that lasted through the rest of his administration, wiped out four of his sons, caused almost a civil war in the country, and caused innumerable suffering in the part of the people, all because of that one sin. And it's traced. 2 Samuel traces it for us. How do we reconcile what we read here in Second Samuel with a prophetic interpretation in First Kings? Does the Bible have a conflict? What's going on? How can the prophets say what they say in First Kings and have recorded what they recorded in Second Samuel? Well, it must be that somehow they're looking at things differently than what we would first think. The prophets weren't stupid. They knew what David had done. That was an open secret. No problem there. What they mean when they say David went wholly after the Lord, I believe, is this. The prophets are saying here was a man who, at a moment, he failed. But he didn't stay in the failure mode. He got with the program, and he followed the Lord through all the fallout. So, yes, did David fall? Yes, he did. Did he pay for consequences socially? Yes, he did. And did he fall at this point? Yes, he did. But, after Nathan got through with him, we know from Psalm 51 that he confessed his sin and he moved on with the Lord. All through the ups and the downs and the chaos and the death of his sons, he kept steadily relying on the Lord of grace. And when God saw that, God said, now there's a man holy after my heart. Would we have that same evaluation? Remember, Saul, his predecessor, is never said to have committed any immoral act. And yet the evaluation is far more severe on Saul than it is on David. Is this because God allows this? He relishes in this? Not at all. Missed the point. The point is that David realized how to recover. He realized what it takes to recover from failure. He realized what he had to do to work through the fallout of his own failure, which is the hardest thing to do. You can always work through persecutions of other people towards you. That's easier to deal with in many sense than to work through the crud that you know very well is your own. And you know it and it aggravates you because every time you think about it, you think about you were the idiot that did that. You are the person that started out. You can't blame your mother, your father, your children, your environment, your teachers, your schools. can't blame anybody else except you. To deal with that, to deal with that, year after year, as David had to, he remembered the words of Nathan must have tormented him. Every time he got a, a report of a death, number one, dead. Number two son, dead. Number three son, dead. When they brought the the body of his son back, you say, he never heard Nathan's words, I'll bet you he did. They were like a tape recorder. And every time he faced the consequences of his own sin, there was a temptation here from Satan to say, David, give up, give up, give up. You screwed up so bad that you can't possibly recover. Forget it. You're a loser. Permanently. And every time David dealt with that thought that he had, the temptation to say, I'm a loser. I'm going to drop out. I've had it. I'm going to give up. But he didn't. Every time it happened, he recovered. He kept writing. What's the big book that we all refer to when we sing out of it? The book of Psalms. He kept writing the Psalms. All through this mess, he kept writing. All through this mess, he kept worshiping. That's what God means when he says he's a man who followed after my own heart. Now, if that's really the case, think of what, the, what this means for us. It means that when we walk through the Christian life, what we see is the good and the evil. We see this mess. It's a mixed mess. And we all know that. But when God looks down, what he's looking for is those places where we've trusted Him, where we've responded correctly. Now, here's David's life. It's got all this mess in it. And yet, God looks down in this life and says, He wholly followed me. Now, how can God do that? The only way I see that you can reconcile 1 Kings and 2 Samuel is to say that when God is doing that, He's looking at those good sections in his life. He didn't turn into a loser. He kept with the program. He coped with his own fallout. Now, let's see how he did that. And we have the model, which I've outlined in page 113 and 114. It's the fundamental heart of sanctification. If we understood this better, we wouldn't have Christians going off to psychiatrists wasting their money at $50 an hour, whatever the going rate is. The point is, this is the essence of recovery, right here. And it consists of three things. The first is conviction. Let's turn to Psalm 51, because this is the model for it. For a recovery from a from a massive failure, remember, a light failure massive failure that doesn't make any difference. Is number one, we have to be convinced that in fact we have sinned. Now this sounds a little funny because you say, well, uh, you know, didn't he know? Well, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. When Nathan had to walk in and tell him the story, why did Nathan have to tiptoe through the tulips and do the indirect approach? Because David had his defenses up. He was psychologically suppressing the evidence of his own guilt. And it took somebody from outside of himself, Nathan, to get around through the back door and say, David and work on it in that way until it clicked with him. So just because we're in close proximity to our failure does not guarantee we're viewing it correctly from God's point of view. We've got to get in the head straight on what really is going on here. And that's why when we read Psalm 51 last time, remember I said verse 4 is the key in that psalm? And it strikes you as kind of odd to look at because There's vast social consequences to what he did, and yet he seemingly downplays those social consequences in verse 4 when he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And we said that the issue there was David, this is where David reached conviction. This is where he became convinced of sin. If he had just thought about social consequences, how might he have written verse 4? Oh, what a mess. But confessing that it's a mess isn't confessing necessarily, it's a sin. Do you see the difference? He's saying, I have sinned against you, and when he does this, now his whole focus becomes what God thinks of the problem, not what man thinks of the problem. So his focus shifts. Now think of how backwards therapy is today when people seek psychological counseling and the rest of it. Just think of how backwards it is. Nine times out of ten, what do these therapies wind up doing? Digging up your past. Why? So you can understand why you did what you did. Well, sometimes that's helpful. But my point is that it's not understanding what you did in the light of the horizontal, It's understanding what you did in the light of the vertical. It's understanding, what did I do before God? He's the one who's the the guy that makes the rules here. Not mother, not father, not anybody else. I mean, these people are all important. Not knocking that. But I have to say, verse 4 is written the way verse 4 is written. And verse 4 certainly is directing our attention to the fact that the issue in recovery centers on on conviction of sin before God. Not with an emphasis on the mess that we've made with men, although we have made messes with men. That's not denying here. The point is you don't solve the messes with men by looking at the messes with men. You resolve the mess by looking at what's going on vertically between you and God. That's how you resolve it. That's the tool. And... I point out in the second paragraph from the bottom on page 113 an important, I think, misunderstanding of the word conviction. Let me read that, if you'll follow with me, that paragraph. Conviction, like the term covenant, is so much used in our circles that we get sloppy in our understanding of it. In previous parts of this series, I stressed again and again the term covenant means the same thing as our term contract. In a similar way, the biblical term conviction means essentially the same thing as a modern term, convinced. So, if, if conviction is a word that's too religious for you, no, it's, it's coded with so many connotations, it's lost its power. Replace it with the word convinced. David, in, in verse 4, is convinced that he has sinned before God. now, can there be emotions with it? Yes, there can be emotions with it. But the emphasis in Scripture is on the convincing, not on the kind of personal response to the conviction. Now there are people that are very emotional naturally. And they'll sob and they'll weep and they'll go into all kinds of hysterics. There are other people that naturally are just, you know, I mean, if the world broke open, you wanted to they just keep on walking. Different personalities. And what you find in in our own circles is that we have a certain stereotypical response to conviction of sin. A person has to do those things, or they're really not convicted of sin. There's none of that in the Scripture. The emphasis in Scripture, whether in their heart they are convinced of sin, regardless of their personal expression. First of all, we don't know what their heart is before God. So right away, we don't have the gift of prophecies, and we're not going to sit there with a magnifying glass and figure out what's going on. The point, though, is there has to be convincing. Why do you suppose there has to be something convincing? Think about what faith requires. I can't walk by faith until what? I believe something is true. So you see, you can't get to the second step if you don't believe the first step. So that's why there has to be a conviction and a convincing of my personal sin before I can, by faith, deal with it. If I don't, then I'm faking it. And what what that gets to the second point now. So now we come to what confession is. See, the problem is that many of us run our lives based on peer pressure. Now... Peer pressure is acknowledged in Scripture because it's exhortation and the role of other believers. That's that's valid. But ultimately, it's not what your peers want you to do. If I operate on the basis of what my peers want me to do, I am not, at that point, walking by faith. I am walking by social pressure. I am walking by... Pressure, by being bound in by somebody else's opinion regardless of what and you know what ultimately that leads to? A violated conscience. Because now you've allowed somebody else to usurp the place of conscience before God. And conscience never can get a chance to grow. This is why it's it's you know, as children grow and as a parent you sit there and w- watch things go on and you sit down and you bite your tongue because you know that the more you say, the less they're going to be heard. And, and what you have to trust is that conscience will be developed. Now, they may go out and get hit by a car before they develop the conscience, but sooner or later, God is going to do deal with that. And as a parent, it becomes a real problem because we want to step in and maneuver. And it's natural. We don't want somebody to get hurt. But the problem with that is that they have to learn to take their own knocks. They have to learn to respond by faith. Or they have to learn to respond like a jerk and learn the hard way, just like we did. The only difference between an older person and a new person? The older person's screwed up more. That's all. So, since we've screwed up 105 more times in that area, and they have you know, some tidbits of wisdom that we can pass on, The problem is, when we were their their age, we weren't open to the tidbits of wisdom either. So, that's the way it goes. Generation to generation. Point is, at confession, we acknowledge that we have sinned, and at that very moment, it's almost like first believing. Because when we confess, what are we doing? See, we're not going through 16 and a half hours of psychotherapy at $110 an hour or something. What we're doing is at this very point, we are acknowledging that we can't do anything about it. We have offended a holy righteous Creator. We can't take a sponge and wash our sins away. We can't pull a deal with Him and say, Well, God, I'll be good for the next five days to overcome all the bad. He doesn't take deals. And in our hearts, we know that He doesn't take deals. And we know those are hollow promises, if we're honest with ourselves. So confession is a very precious moment. And it's a moment that can only happen when spiritually we're ready for it. So that's the recovery that David used. In Psalm 51, notice how he does it. Here's an expression of what it looks like. Notice in, at the end of verse 4, he says, And and, and he, he, this is quoted in Romans, by the way. It's an interesting, if you study Romans 3, how Paul uses this quote. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, what what do you say? You know, why is that tucked into verse 4? Why do you suppose? What is always the temptation when we just ooch right up to the point of confession? Before we can really confess that we sinned against God and it's wholly our responsibility, what little thing does the flesh or Satan put in there? Remember what after God addressed Adam and he asked him what was happening? What what did Adam add, a little clause? He says, Yeah, but 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 the woman that you gave me, you see? And we we want to make him sort of the circumstance. We we politely go around the bush by saying it's circumstances that led me to do it, but we know very well who's sovereign over circumstances. So that last verse, that last part of verse 4, cuts out all that junk out. And David just drops it and says, now look, no excuse. One of the first things I remember when I was going to the Air Force was we had some drill sergeants. And the one lesson that we got out of that first week was when something screwed up, you didn't go and make an excuse. You said, no excuse, sir. Period. They weren't interested in whether you got up late, why your shoes weren't shined, why you couldn't recite what you're supposed to recite, or any of the other innumerables that went on. They weren't interested in that, didn't care, heard all the excuses. All they wanted to know was whether you accepted personal responsibility for your life or not. Period. So, verse 4 could be, in modern vernacular, no excuses, sir. Now he goes on in verse 5 and 6, and this is not a compromise of verse 4, but if you look carefully at verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, he goes on to confess not only the personal act of sin, but in confessing that, makes him more deeply aware of his own sin nature of his flesh. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. He's not blaming his mother. That's not the spirit of this text. He's simply saying that evil is so profoundly rooted in me. I am a fallen, depraved creature. You desire truth in the innermost being. and the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. See, the tension between five and six, there's a debate, by the way, in translating those verbs in verse six, whether they're imperatives or whether they're descriptives. But in verse 5 and 6, there's a tension. Verse 5 is his flesh. Verse 6 is what God wants. He wants a changed heart. So verse 7 and 8 is his prayer. In light of that, Purify me hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. What do you think he means in verse 8? Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. You know what he's talking about? His own misery, his discipline, the suffering that he was experiencing. And he, he, he attaches it all to his own personal sin. Hide your face from my sins and blot out of my iniquities. Now, we, because of, we live this side of the cross, we know how God hides his face and blots out iniquities. So we have more information than David did when he wrote verse 9. But notice verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You see what he's doing here? Restore to me a joy of salvation. None of this is horizontal. If you look verse after verse after verse in 51, it's all vertical. There's not a word about his father. His mother is only mentioned incidentally in verse 5. None of his brothers. Saul's not mentioned. Bathsheba's not mentioned. Nobody's mentioned except God. And then he goes on to describe how he uses this. So we come then to conviction, then we can confess, and this is holy by faith, because there's nothing we can do. This side of the cross, what do we do? We come back to the cross. Right where we started. It's like you know, going through a game and you get penalized and you come back to square one. In a way, that's what happens when we confess our sins we come back to where we started the day we became a Christian. Right back to the cross. That's what real confession looks like. Then, the third step is God's response. Now, this is tricky. So, I want to spend just a few minutes here with God's response. David must have had a problem with this because he asks in verse 8, he asks for, to hear joy and gladness. Did David hear joy and gladness with four sons dying? I don't think so. I don't think that prayer was answered entirely in his life. How was the prayer answered then? Ultimately, it was answered in eternity. What happens here is that God immediately forgives and David's relationship to God is as sure as sure as it was two seconds before he sinned with Bathsheba. It's as sure then as it is before. The problem is that God's response is to put David back in fellowship, is to cleanse him from sin, is to have that imputed righteousness credited to David's account, is to go through all the restoration necessary, but... God's response is not necessarily to remove, we'll put minus, not necessarily to remove consequences. And that little not necessarily remove consequences causes the problem. Because the tendency is, since he doesn't remove the consequences, and Satan can pull one on you that will knock you out for a long time if you let him do it, he'll get you looking at the consequences. And then he'll say to you, see, God hasn't forgiven you. God hasn't forgiven you. Look at those consequences. See? See? He's still disciplining you, still there. He hasn't responded to you. Well, yes, he has responded to you. He has perfectly cleansed the record. In fellowship with him completely. And you know there's a, there's a bitterness to Satan's Satan's shrill words when he does this. You know why? Because he's not forgiven. See, Satan has rebelled and he has never known grace. And it must infuriate him every time one of us stumbles and we fall and we have the audacity to recover like David, confess our sins, come to the cross like we did when we became Christians, recognize that he and he alone can give us the righteousness, and recognize that he has, past tense, given it to us, recognizing, like David did, that his dynasty is secure forever and ever and ever, and to walk on, knowing that, amidst all the crud. What has Satan got left? He can't knock the vertical relationship because God controls that. So the one area where he can get you is to get your eyes down, looking down, on all the consequences. And if you dwell on all those consequences, consequences, consequences... Sooner or later, he's going to whisper to your heart, God hasn't forgiven you. And then what happens to your walk by faith? It goes right down the drain. Right down the drain. Because now he isn't the focus anymore. Because now there's a doubt in your heart that you're acceptable with God. And so you see what an important thing this recovery principle is. To become convinced of our sin, to deal with it at a point of confession, and then to... Trust God with his response. That even if the response includes perpetuation of consequences, I am not going to let that throw me. And David's the model. That's why God could say, he's a man wholly after my heart. Yes, I know David screwed up. Yes, I know there were consequences in his life. But the issue after he sinned wasn't those consequences. The issue was, did David or did he not manage the consequences? Rightfully. Did he handle the consequences? And yes, he did. I want to conclude, if you look at that, page 115 is a quote there by Dr. Adams who started a lot of biblical counseling a couple of decades ago. This is from one of his earlier books. And I think it's sort of, from an experienced counselor's point of view, it's a neat comment on all of us. Many counselees come only in order to obtain relief from the consequences of sinful life patterns. They do not think of the Holy God, whom they have offended by violating His will. They must be brought to conviction of sin, not merely to recognition of their misery. True relief, like true happiness, is always a byproduct It may never be found by seeking it directly. And 101 protests are heard daily by Christian counselors. Boiled down, they all say one thing. Please excuse me from my responsibility to life like a Christian on the grounds that my problem is unique. And he concludes with this neat illustration. If a head-hunting Alka Indian can change so radically that he abandons his primitive pagan lifestyle is able to tour the United States giving testimony to his newfound faith, Then an American housewife, or we could say a husband, who may have experienced less love and security in their childhood than she might have wished, also may become a responsible Christian woman, or in this case a husband. She is not doomed inevitably to live a life of a verbal headhunter because of what her parents did to her. See what he's saying? And what do we do in all our therapies? We dwell on consequences. We dwell on what happened when we were a kid, how many times your mother dropped you on your head when you were a baby, or numerous other things. Everything except the issue of what is going on between me and God. Father, we thank you for your grace. We're thankful that you give us the tools of recovery, that you've made it so profoundly easy, and yet we stumble over this simple truth again and again and again. May you recall our hearts and our minds to David and may we just circulate his life in our imagination's eye that we can see David as the man who had to walk through the consequences but he was always looking up and you rewarded him with that evaluation that he walked wholly after you. In Christ's name, Amen. I finished class just a few minutes ago. Uh one of the people that comes to the class is a watcher of our Harford County School Board, always giving me materials. This one takes a cake. This is a, the new the new thing that our president is pushing is called fuzzy math. There were four birds in a nest and one flew away. How do you think the bird felt that flew away from the nest? This is in the math test. Excuse me? Fuzzy math humanizes arithmetic and makes it relevant. It's more important to have a rationale for a wrong answer than get the right answer in fuzzy math. Well, I always thought there was something wrong with the people running the country. Now we know. Fuzzy math. (laughs) Specialized version of fuzzy thinking. Anyway... um, Tonight we just we're going to we finish and I, I want to terminate um, that section. So if you have questions on what happened up to the origin of Israel and uh, events up to t- tonight with, with David that we've covered, because next time I'd like to start aggressively. Now the handout you got tonight doesn't have any kind of reading assignment, but uh, if you'll read, start reading Kings, um, because basically it's going to be heavily on kings for the rest of the next two or three months. Uh, we'll have a gap, of course, for Christmas but um, and then in Thanksgiving, but um, we're going to deal with the kingdom, and this can be done in several ways. And the way I choose to approach this part of the Old Testament is instead of narrating the king did this and the king did that and what happened in so-and-so's reign, uh, Uh, you need to read that if you never have, so you understand what the issues are, that there's a northern and southern split, and so what we'll talk about next week. But if you can just start reading for next week, next week I'll introduce that. And you'll see that we're going to approach things a little differently. Um, We're going to get much more into the sanctification side of the house, and less into the apologetic stuff that's directed outside to the non-Christian. It's mostly in-house stuff. Uh, and that will go- carry through the end of the Old Testament because right now at this point Old Testament history shifts to an anticipation of the coming of Jesus and it's it's building things up and so then when we finally get to the Lord Jesus Christ and we get to that section we deal with his whole life and the Gospels and the whole doctrine of the person of Christ and his work that makes a lot more sense when you Place it in the in the continuity of the Old Testament. So tonight is kind of a time when we can clean up any loose ends uh, up to this point in Old Testament history. We've we've seen the origin of Israel. We've seen the nation come into the land. We've seen them conquer the pagan nations, causing all kinds of moral objections to holy war. Uh, we we've, we've seen God's God is very clear what He's doing now in history. So now the question comes. Um, we're going to deal with the internal life inside that kingdom. But right now we're talking about the kingdom coming into existence. Uh, so if you have any questions on that period of time. Yes, Debbie? A comment mm-hmm. about you I mean, um, I guess, you know, for crucial because... Unfortunately, there have been Christians who take that particular verse to mean that you can lose your salvation. Um, And that's not the argument there. And the reason it's not the argument there is that when you have the Holy Spirit's work described in the Old Testament... Don't read into those passages what you know from the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's clear that when the Holy Spirit comes in, he's regenerating, he's indwelling, and all these great and wonderful things. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit could come, come into a person and turn him into a carpenter. The Holy Spirit could come into a person like Samson, and it had no commentary whatever on Samson's spiritual life. It just juiced him up so he could kill people. So. Coming and the working of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament has to be interpreted very carefully in the context in which it's talked about. And in that context, obviously, he saw what happened to Saul because he was there when the Spirit left Saul. And what did David wind up doing with Saul? Remember from the stories? I mean, when saul what happened to Saul personally in his mental life? He started losing it. And who was his therapist? It was David. playing the the music to him. And so David must have seen Saul at his worst. I mean, think about it for a minute. Here's a young boy at a very impressionable age in his life, being thoroughly trusted by by the president of the country, by the king. And he's intimate to this guy's brooding depression. Over, hour after hour must have gone by. And David's sitting there playing his harp playing this demon out of Saul. you think That must have made one lasting impression on David. Actually, God was using that to train David. See? Now, the tension about that statement, that the, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, let's, let's back up one moment. What, what, when the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul, what else was taken from Saul? That announcement that the Holy Spirit was taken was simultaneous with something else that happened in Saul. The kingdom was taken. His dynasty was terminated. So when David's praying that, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, he probably has a lot more in mind than just mental health. He's probably talking about his own dynasty. And if that's so, then that shows you that he hadn't even grasped the terms of the Davidic covenant too thoroughly. Which might have been a real possibility because we think, oh, when these guys first heard the word, I mean, they just snapped it up and moved right on. Well, maybe not. And maybe it it was gradual dawning, or maybe, like you say, Debbie, maybe after David thought about what he'd done, it became so repulsive to him, he would be amazed that God wouldn't take the dynasty away from him. So that's a a good observation. There was a lot of struggle going on, David. Yes, Bob. That's a good point. Hadn't even thought about that? That's a very good point, that um, picking up... Further, what De- Debbie's pointed out here is that as a young boy, he had to live through that. And that, in a way, was kind of an abusive environment, if we would use the terms in their modern context. I mean, that was pretty rough stuff for a young boy to be faced with. Um, to see, see the head of the nation fall apart, right, three feet away from you. Um, and to live in that kind of environment... Uh, and it probably it pro- that, that little clause in Psalm 51, that's an interesting insight, probably shows you right there how he is coping with a very real situation. That would be interesting drama. You know, like we had a dramatic team here perform Saturday night missions, great team, did a biography of God. And it, it reminded me of what can be done with good drama. And can you imagine what um, a good actor in a, dramati- a dramatic presentation of the thoughts that went through David's mind as he did Psalm 51. That would be a good point to make. That he he probably welled up within him, oh no, am I going to go through just what, what I saw Saul go through? And then, instead of sitting there and going into a tailspin of depression himself, he takes it to the Lord, and that verse is where he actually, literally takes it to the Lord. So that shows something else about his recovery and how he dealt with that. So that's neat. Good, good, good comments. Um, yeah, that's a good point about the role of music and praise. Um, it's no accident that think of think of what a what a section of the Old Testament, the Book of Psalms, is, and it's all you read one after another. It's talking about stringed instruments. You see the headers on the psalms. So it's very clear that those psalms are being sung. They weren't just poetry. They were sung poetry. And of course we've lost the music. And It's one of the big things that Jewish Orthodox people are trying to do. They they think they see marks in the Hebrew text that have been there for centuries. And some, some Jewish musicians are trying to see if those marks convey some lost music symbols so far, nobody's made a convincing case that you can recover the Songs of Zion. And we may never do that, the music itself, because there is one psalm in there, I think it's, I forget what psalm it is, Psalm 120, something in there, where, what is it? It's, it's the, no, it's the psalm where it was written during the horror of the exile, and they're in Babylon and the Jews say, the pagans tell us to sing your songs of Zion, and we hung our harps in the trees. And it's a story of the giving up of the music. At that point, the Jews refused to sing. They could not sing hymns outside of the land. And uh, from that point on, that whole Jewish tradition was lost. Just like they lost the ability to, they don't know what, how to call God, God. I mean, that's the whole problem with the word for God that they lost the ability to name their God. And it's remarkable, these people that knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean, really. (laughs) Jehovah is the only possibility that couldn't be. It's a phony name that was created by grammarian translators. But certainly God's name is not Jehovah, it's something else. And the closest approximation we have to what his real name sounded like was off the verb to be, and it's something like Yahweh. That's why in my text sometimes you'll see Y-A-H-W-E-H. That's the closest thing that anybody's ever come to God's name. But anyway, all that was lost in the exile, and to get back to the role of music and sanctification, it definitely is there. And what's disturbing is if you take a hymn book, even ours, and you look and date the hymns, and you go back. Or if you if you take a if you could put this on a disc, a computer disc, and sort by date, you could trace the theological rise and fall of the church, because the hymns that were written, for example, many of those hymns that we like, love so much are all written by one man, Isaac Watts, and Isaac Watts was a buddy of the Wesley family, and so you have that whole group of reformers that wrote. Martin Luther wrote famous hymns and. And what Luther had done, according to, to historians of music, is that he became so conscious of this truth, of the need for music to, to help us in our struggles, that collectively, the idea... That's what was so neat about Promise Keepers, sitting out there in that mall in Washington, standing with a million-plus men, and singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, with God Almighty. I'll never forget that. I mean, it was awesome to think of that happening. And there's just power in the numbers, of sheer numbers of people. And in, in the book of Revelation, the, the, you have tens of thousands of, from every to- tribe, every tongue, singing before God's throne. So, it's something that Satan hates to hear, is a, a concerted praise. The problem with a lot of our hymns is that the people who write today's hymns, uh, with some fine exceptions, are not the greatest theologians in the world, and the and the lyrics are very anemic, and a lot of them concentrate on how I feel, They're very subjective hymns. Now, if you think back through to the hymn that Martin Luther wrote, think of the words, "A mighty fortress is our God." Well, I don't know whether we got that, but it's such a lesson in in a guy that wrote a hymn that had the proper theology to it, and. Um, I just want to show, think, of, think of what we often sing in our churches. Um, Where's Mighty Fortresses, our God here? 26. Okay, look at look at what he does here. Now look at the theology in this hymn. And when we start talk, talking about uh, Oh How I Love Jesus, and, and you know these are sweet little ditties, but the the thing about Luther was. He, God wasn't interested in what Luther said. Look at this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills. I mean, even the word mortal ills. Look how precise that word is. Mortal ills. What's the implication of that word mortal ills? The things that came out of the fall of man. The mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient fall does seek to work us well. his craft and power are great. Of course they are. Are The Almost near omnipotence of Satan and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. What an eloquent statement. And what conclusion, before you even go to the second stanza of a mighty fortress is our God, where do you have to go then if you're going to oppose one who on earth has no equal? Not us. So it forces you up Did we in our own strength confide, see how the second stanza follows quickly in the theology of the first? Our striving would be losing, of course it would, because the one who is on earth has no equal. We're not the right man on our side. That's a clever statement. The right man. Notice he doesn't say God on our side. The right man on our side. Why does he say man? Because he's thinking of the incarnate Christ who walked around and had victory over the one who on earth now has no equal. Who was the man that beat him? See? And where's the man? He's at the right hand of the Father. See, Luther, Luther knew his stuff here. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it's he. And then he uses this word, Lord Sabaoth, his name. You know what? Sabaoth is not Sabbath. Sabaoth uh, is the word for peace. It's the word for rest. It's the word that is used for the rest that comes from victory. Finally, after it's all over. Lord Sabbath is named from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Notice he must win the battle. And you notice whose battle it is. It's not ours. It's his. And he's the one that's going to win it and then he, you can see he's struggling See, he starts off this hymn with a peon to God himself a mighty fortress by the second stanza he's gone to Satan and he's created the tension in the hymn now what are we going to do? And the third one he, start, he goes all the way down into our life though this world, with demons fill should threaten to undo us we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us you talk about heavy sovereignty of God. What is it that He's doing there? You see, so far in all these three stanzas, there hasn't been one reference to how He felt. Not one reference to His psychology. All of it's theology, not psychology. He has willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness, grim, we don't tremble for Him. His rage we can endure. For lo, His doom is sure. What has he done in the third stanza to Satan? He's locked him up. See? He's boxed in. He's limited evil. One little word shall fell him. So by the time he starts on the end, look at how he ended the first stanza. On earth is not his equal. And look how he ends the third stanza. One little word shall fell him. Now, to get from that clause in the first stanza to the last clause in the third, Luther had to go through theology, didn't he? He had to talk about Christ at the Father's right hand. He had to talk about the sovereign will of God. And then he could say, he didn't skip from on earth is not as equal to one little word shall fall. And that wouldn't have worked because we couldn't have sung that with our heart. Our heart had to glide from one truth slowly into the other one through the music. And then he has this last... Stanza is a theon to the Word. And the Word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abides. See? He even, and, and, and above all earthly powers. And see, that's a reference to all the demonic. See, Luther was a man who was deeply troubled. And some people say the guy was psychologically, he had a problem. But notice how he dealt with his problem. The word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abides. The spirit and the gift are ours, through him who us signeth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abides still. I mean, what powerful stuff. See? So, the hymns are very important. Music is tremendous in sanctification. And the Psalms were where it all started. They become our models Yeah, Yeah, Christians who, I'm not a musician, so I can't talk, I'm talking out of my field, but I've talked very seriously to to people who are real students of music, I mean Ph.D. students who are Christians. And I've asked this of three that I've known very well in my life. One got his Ph.D. in music from Indiana University, one of the top music universities in our country. Uh, another guy, Ph.D. now. Where did Tom graduate from? Forgot. Not anymore. Yeah, no, Tom Brown, but I think the other Tom, Tom at uh, The University of Oklahoma, I guess. Anyway, the point is, these guys have studied music theory very carefully, on their doctoral program, and he, they tell me this. They said that musical structure is not ethically neutral, not just the lyrics, but the structure. Then they said that, cla- that music has a certain moral tone to it. And they said, they gave, one guy, one of the PhDs, gave me this illustration. He said, do you know who the most intellectual composer is? The man who appeals to your mind without knowing any lyrics. You just have to listen to his music, and you know immediately his appeal is not to your emotions. His appeal is to your head. And it's Bach. J.S. Bach a guy that was hired by a church and had to come up with a new hymn every Sunday. That's what John Sebastian Bach did. He was hired to lead worship services, and he was expected by the congregation to make a new piece every Sunday. Well, his music is very highly structured. A lot of people don't like it, but the point this man was making, not whether you like Bach music or not, but if you listen to it, it's all these... He, he, he manipulates chords, and so you have to really concentrate on him to find out what is he doing as you, as you work through his music. And, and there's hardly any emotion to it. And then you take other guys, and they can put the heavy in the emotion, and what these men are saying is that, apart from the lyrics, the music, a good music will have emotional content to it, but won't let that emotions override your thought processes. And that's the mark of good music. Good music will have a powerful emotion, and then they said it will let you down. It lifts you up and then lets you down. And early in the days when rock music was...